If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the October 27th Halloween edition of I'm M.R.U. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio news magazine. Ooh, out front and out loud <laughs> since 1974. <laughs> I'm Chris Eastwood. And I'm Wenzel Jones. Ooh, and I'm Steve Pride. And we're back. And we're, we're back. back. Not from the dead, we're just back, I know. From the we're... millions from the Pledge Drive. Thank you, everyone, for, who donated, who called in and gave the support of the station. Thank you. Thank and, you. And I'd like to say hello to my friend Carlos Uranga, who it turns out faithfully has listened to our show for years, and I didn't know, and he's a straight man. Oh, I know. An ally. I know. We're really embracing that term ally, the straight allies. Can I get my own friends to listen to me on the show? No. But well, people that I see once every two or three years, yes. So, yay. You Thank need to you go for... to a new club. Well, <laughs> shut up, man. <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> well, tonight from the IMRU Vault, an interview with horror writer Clive Barker. The Vault. <laughs> <laughs> and while in the Vault, we also found... A spider. Yes, several. But we also found last Halloween's interview with the owner of the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, a real-life crypt keeper, Tyler Cassidy. He's a really good-looking crypt keeper. He is so good-looking. Oh, my God. It's Halloween. Can you dial it down? But since you can't have Halloween without candy. Even if it's eye candy. Mm -hmm. I'm diabetic. Would eye candy hurt me? No, it okay. will not, because we'll be talking to Barrett Crake, the star of Eternity, the movie. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Michael LeBeau. With NewsRap, a summary of some of the news interaffecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending October 25th, 2014. Right-wing religious crackpots around the world routinely blame LGBT people for everything from floods to tornadoes to drought. Few take them seriously, but leaders of Liberia's Roman Catholic and Anglican churches are claiming that the Ebola outbreak there, one of the worst on the African continent, is God's punishment for the country's acceptance of homosexuality, and they are being taken seriously there. The Liberian Council of Churches said in a statement earlier this year that God was angry with the people of Liberia because it was a nation of immoral acts. Louis Ziegler, the Archbishop of the Roman Catholic Church of Liberia, specifically targeted gay people. Where are we going as Liberians if we are advocating for homosexuality, he asked. Are we not calling for curses upon ourselves? A widely cited Reuters report this week said that LGBT people across the West African country are doubly threatened by the Ebola outbreak. 
They fear not only contracting the virus, but escalating anti-LGBT assaults, including calls for their execution. Monrovia-based activist Leroy Ponpon told the news agency that homophobic violence has become so pervasive that many in the LGBT community are reluctant to leave their homes, and some who do wear disguises. Right now, he said, all we want is protection. With a population of about 4 million people, Liberia has been among the most affected countries in the recent outbreak of the virus, with more than 4,500 cases of the disease and 2,700 deaths. A Nigerian federal high court judge this week dismissed a challenge to the country's draconian anti-gay laws because the man who filed the suit is heterosexual and therefore not directly affected by them. Joseph Taria Abba sued the government for enacting what's come to be known as the Jail All the Gays Law last year, which his suit called a violation of the fundamental human rights of LGBT Nigerians guaranteed in the nation's constitution. The 42-year-old Nigerian native is married with children and has lived in the UK for the last 14 years. But he told BuzzFeed that, I decided I wasn't going to accept a Nigeria that was discriminatory. Private consensual adult gay sex was already illegal in the country, but the new law increased penalties for those acts, criminalized advocacy for LGBT rights, banned same-gender couples from civil marriage, punishes same-gender couples who try with 14 years in prison, and wedding guests with 10 years. Activists worry that any self-identified LGBT person who files a challenge to the law could be immediately arrested. Abba's brother and lawyer, Mike and Ahoro Abba, said they would appeal the ruling. About 20 hooded vandals invaded the second anniversary party of an LGBT center in the Macedonian capital of Skopje this week, throwing bottles and crates and leaving one young woman injured. Balkan Insight said the attack took place at the Demar Cafe in the city's Old Bazaar area and that the 10-minute assault became a stampede. Witnesses says they didn't see the faces of the assailants because they wore hoods, but one described them as well-organized. They had an exact plan of how to enter, she said, what to demolish, and when to leave before the police came. Vandals attacked the center twice in 2013, once when people were inside watching a movie and later in the year when no one was in the building. The police failed to make arrests in either case. The center is financially supported by the Dutch embassy. Outgoing Dutch ambassador Mariette Sherman said the failure of authorities to curb anti-LGBT violence creates a perception that this is sponsored, or tolerated in the best case, by the government and used as an instrument to make people afraid and to try to shut them up. Aranya Porovska, director of the Helsinki Committee for Human Rights in Macedonia, a host of the event, said that In Macedonia, the fundamental rights of the LGBT community have no value. Their right to live is endangered. But a civilian transgender U.S. military employee has won a landmark discrimination case. Army veteran Tamara Lusardi, who's disabled, endured ongoing discrimination while working at the Army's Aviation and Missile Research Development and Engineering Center in Alabama. Her suit claimed that her superiors banned her from using female bathrooms and continued to refer to her as he and sir. She finally filed a complaint with the Office of Special Counsel, an independent federal investigative and prosecutorial agency, which ruled this week that the abuse she suffered was sufficiently frequent, pervasive, and humiliating to constitute discriminatory harassment. As a disabled veteran, Lusardi said in a statement, I take great pride in my role protecting our soldiers from harm. Like anyone else, I just want the freedom to be myself at work. 
The case is the latest example of the Obama administration's increasing defense of the rights of transgender people under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which outlaws bias based on gender. Transgender people are, however, currently banned from active military service in the United States. Trans-military personnel from 18 other countries gathered last week in Washington, D.C. to discuss how the U.S. military might join them. The conference, entitled Perspectives on Transgender Military Service from Around the Globe, was billed as a first-ever international gathering of trans-military service members. Featured speakers included transgender officers from Canada, Australia, New Zealand, a former U.S. Navy SEAL who transitioned after her service, an intelligence officer with the Swedish Air Force, and a squadron leader for the British Royal Air Force. U.S. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel signaled a willingness to consider transgender service earlier this year, but later backtracked and said he was not inclined to formally review the current policy. Breaking with most of his peers, a federal judge has upheld the ban on civil marriage for same-gender couples in the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico. District Judge Perez Jimenez wrote that, the very survival of the political order depends upon the procreative potential embodied in traditional marriage. The question now, he concluded, is whether judicial wisdom may contrive methods by which those solid principles can be circumvented or even discarded. An appeal of the ruling to the first U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals is in the works. Marriage equality already flourishes in all the U.S. states over which that court has jurisdiction. Lesbian and gay couples still can get married in Kansas, Montana, and South Carolina, even though the U.S. Supreme Court recently let stand federal court rulings with jurisdiction over those states that overturned their civil marriage bans. Officials in each state are demanding that a federal court specifically order them to issue marriage licenses to same-gender couples. And even though gay and lesbian couples have already started tying the knot in Alaska following a district court ruling striking down the ban there, the state's Republican governor and attorney general are asking for what's called an en banc review by 11 judges of the 9th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. A three-judge panel of the court has already upheld district court rulings that struck down bans in other states. Idaho's Republican governor, Butch Otter, who last week said he wouldn't challenge the overturning of the ban in his state, reversed course this week and is now asking for an en banc review by the 9th Circuit of its three-judge panel's ruling that struck down the bans in his state and in Nevada. But Nevada's Republican governor, Brian Sandoval, says he's opposed to such a challenge. Absent his administration's defense of the ban, the right-wing Coalition for the Protection of Marriage is asking the entire Ninth Circuit to review the ruling. A major issue in that case will be the conservative organization's legal standing to intervene. Same-gender couples have already started marrying in both Idaho and Nevada. Meanwhile, Utah's Supreme Court lifted a ban on adoptions by same-gender couples this week following a request by Republican Attorney General Sean Reyes. His office requested a stay earlier this year after a district judge asked officials to explain why such couples were not being allowed to adopt children. The state now opening adoptions to married same-gender couples appears to be a byproduct of the Supreme Court's recent refusal to hear a case overturning Utah's civil marriage ban. Elsewhere, organizers of the 6th annual Hong Kong Pride Celebration have chosen an umbrella as this year's symbol, in coincidental solidarity with the city's pro-democracy movement. 500 rainbow umbrellas were ordered in early August, more than a month before the street protests, known as Occupy Central, began. The Cantonese word for putting up an umbrella sounds like support, and protesters have been using them to defend against tear gas, pepper spray, and police batons. Pride spokeswoman Wei Siu Lik said that 
we support civil society, and we hope it can support us in return, too. More than 8,000 people marched with Pride in 2013. The South China Morning Post reports that participants are scheduled to begin this year's march at Hong Kong's Victoria Park on the afternoon of November 8th. And finally... Out actor and activist Sir Ian McKellen reprised his role as the wizardly Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings trilogy during a visit to Chu Valley School this week as part of the work to combat campus bullying and homophobia. Speaking to a crowd of students, he also urged them to study well. In your preparation for your examinations, if you don't do your revision properly, do you know what will happen? You shall not That's News Wrap for the week ending October 25th, 2014. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap was produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Michael LeBeau. And I'm Wenzel Jones. You know you can hear all 30 minutes of the latest This Way Out, including more news wrap on free podcasts at Stitcher Radio On Demand, iTunes, or at thiswayout.org. Also on the program this week, right-wing televangelist Pat Robertson issues a gay terrorism alert, and black New Jersey lesbians get prison time just for going out in the night. You know, I don't know how to introduce Clive Barker without taking up the next half hour. He's a writer, a filmmaker, an artist. Just a few of the books and films he's done include Nightbreed, Candyman, Weave World, Cabal, the whole Hellraiser series, and well, enough of that. Just let's, let's listen to Clive. I am a man, and men are animals who tell stories. This is a gift from God, who spoke our species into being, but left the end of our story untold. That mystery is troubling to us. How could it be otherwise, without the final part, we think? How are we to make sense of all that went before, which is to say, our lives? So we make stories of our own, in fevered and envious imitation of our Maker, hoping that we'll tell, by chance, what God left untold, and finishing our tale, come to understand why we were born. Clive Barker, writer, artist, filmmaker, weaver of fantastic worlds. There's very little sex in the work of Stephen King. Right. Your books are very sensual, very sexual. Right. Why? Why? (laughs) Sex is fascinating, isn't it? Sex is such a powerful force in our lives. And horror fiction and science fiction and fantasy fiction very often require as some portion of the narrative to drive a character into a place where he or she would not normally go. I cannot think of a more powerful motive force for that than desire and erotic love. And so very often, more often than not, my characters are not frightened into corners, but seduced into corners. And that's an important distinction. I mean, I feel as though the dark side, if you will, exercises in my fiction a great uh, attractiveness, a great seductiveness. I think actually in allowing the erotic element of 
of the villain, the dark entity, to manifest itself. I'm simply following a much older tradition, a tradition which goes back to folklore, which goes back to mythologies of various kinds, in which which seem to own up more freely to the idea that what is um, attractive about the dark side is often tied in with its sexual power. You know, Dracula is an incredibly sexual figure. The devil, I mean, going to the ultimate force for darkness, as it were, is a profoundly sexual figure. And through the many... Uh, myriad uh, representations of the devil over the years that I've studied and read, sexuality and the sexual potency of that character are at the forefront. The whole idea that the monster is sexual and is somebody who will probably do something fabulously forbidden to you is part of his appeal. I think the most homoerotic image... I've seen is the poster for Nightbreed right. with Craig Schaefer. Sure. I mean, that was a movie which was entirely about a subgroup of hidden individuals with their various rules and regulations and rituals into which this young man was brought and initiated, having left his girlfriend behind. Well, gee, what group can this represent? I mean, there was a certain number of people who at the time that that picture came out, completely understood what the picture was about. They tended to be gay critics. Straight critics were just completely in the dark. It was though the movie had to be decoded. And if you decoded it with a gay eye, then it was very clear what it was about. The villains were cops, psychoanalysts, and priests. The Nightbreed themselves were a hint of variegation. They were diverse, physically diverse, physically rather sexy, the whole thing was a, as gay a movie, I would argue, as, as Bride of Frankenstein. Speaking of that, is there a gay sensibility? For sure. I, I believe there is. And I've had this argument back and forth over the years, and the smartest person I ever had the argument with was Gore Vidal. And Vidal, of course, passionately believes that there is no such thing as a gay sensibility, even though I think he is a perfect example of it at work. I think that if you are brought up with something so essential to your your sexuality, forbidden you, unexpressed, undebated, uncelebrated, and you live your life having to find codes in the movies that surround you, in the general culture and comic books or whatever, which allow you to find places of identification. Then from a very early age, you start to shape a different sensibility to the straight person, your straight brother, let's say, who sees everywhere around him in the culture images which perfectly reflect his sensibility. I was born in 52, a long time before Stonewall, a long time before the Wolfton Report actually made gay alliances legal in England. Um, So when I was brought up, it was a crime, and you were in jail for a long time, 20 years perhaps, for, for doing something that came naturally to you. If you define yourself, therefore, as unnatural from a very early age, even if you don't quite understand the vocabulary, if you define yourself as an outsider, because 
Really, you have no choice but to define yourself as an outsider. Everybody else has defined you that way. If you learn to be secretive, because it's easier to be secretive than to be open and honest. If you start to look around at the culture with a, a different kind of eye, an eye which is looking constantly for things which signal that there are people out there who are like you. I think if you're looking around for all those things and trying to shape up an opinion of yourself based upon buried clues around you in the culture, all of those things and a thousand others help you shape a different kind of sensibility to your straight sibling. If you're an artist and as an adult you start to uh, use the feelings that you developed as a child in your art, and every artist does that, every artist churns over these early feelings, then I think what you have is art which is shaped by gay sensibility. And if I take a long time to make the argument, it's because I'm a little tired of the weary throwaway line that there is no such thing as the gay sensibility. I think it just needs to be argued cogently once and left alone. Of course there is such a thing as a gay sensibility. Of course gay men and women think in some fundamental ways differently from straight. It is not just about what we do in bed. It is about the echoes in the culture of who we are or who we aren't. And it's how we deal with those things. It's, it's the stories we tell to one another. It's the stories we tell to ourselves, which make us feel whole and healed. It's all part of that sensibility. But the movement today is to assimilate, to be just as much like your next door neighbor as you can, to have the adopted yeah. child and the picket fence. And Well, my choice is to be with a person who means so much to me and I just want to I want to wake up with him I want to go sleep with him I want to be able to talk with him through the day I don't know if I will go quite as far as the white picket fence but I do like to have roots and what we're trying to do together is put down roots emotional roots two trees growing so closely together that their roots entwine. And my husband has a child, and I do my best to be a good stepfather. But am I ever going to be like my mom and dad? Nah. You have had a number of gay characters in your novels, but I've read you've had trouble with the inclusion of gay characters in film. Well, yeah, I've had trouble with the inclusion of gay characters in, in novels. I mean, it's happened that way, too. So people are more comfortable with monsters than homosexuals. I don't think this comes as any great surprise to either of us, but it's absolutely right. I mean, I think that there's still an awful lot of fear in this town, far more than the articles in Out about Hollywood or whatever would tend to suggest. There's the fear that somehow or other, if you are thought of as a gay creator or as a gay producer or whatever, that's all you will ever be. You will be defined by that three-letter word. And my experience has been, though there is a little bit of a problem where that's related, it's not large. I mean, when I go to a signing, when I sign at a gay bookstore and the straight audience comes in, they don't care. They get their book signed. They get smiles. They get well-treated. That's the kind of ground root stuff that we need to do, I think, uh, as artists. It's not so hard. 
all I think you need to do is say, I'm a human being and my work is intended for the largest cross-section of audience that I can make it for. Clearly, if I'm in uh, mid-America, if I'm in Alabama, it becomes more difficult. But I would say that in the last 20 years going on tour, I found it easier and easier and easier to mingle the audiences to, you know, to, it's so great, you know, Steve. You go, go to a signing and you see a gay couple and a family with their kids and, and a, older folks and, you know, every color, every race, just mingled in that line because they have a single passion and the single passion is, yes, me, but also the fantastic, the imagination. The imagination is a great leveler because we all dream. We all have things which our imaginations throw up as means to explain ourselves to ourselves. And that's what this business is about. I think it's about pulling readers in from all sectors and saying, come join the collective dream. This has been an interview with Clive Barker. I'm Steve Pride. It's close to midnight. Something evil's lurking in the dark. Under the moonlight. You see us like that almost stops your heart. You try to scream. But Tara, take the sound before you make it. You start. Wow. <laughs> I, you... Well played, Chris Ann. Thank My. you. You know, I'm not sure that I've ever seen a Clive Barker movie, but now that I've heard him intellectualize it, I'm not sure I'm smart enough to see a Clive Barker movie. There's a lot going on, apparently. Well, Pinhead and, and Hellraiser, there are a lot of really creepy villains and yeah. scary people. I mean, I remember the billboards because the visuals were so stunning. But... He's an artist, so that's one reason yeah. they were absolutely fantastic. I think to appreciate the subtext of horror, though, you have to be able to watch it for that because mm. I'm personally, I, I, I'm too scared. Yeah. I can't watch these movies. They stick with me too hard. I, I, yeah. It's not my thing. See, I like those trashy Hammer movies when there I was a little kid. Just, just sheer trash. That was my my milieu, as they say. I should mention, though, or maybe shouldn't. I should mention that as he talks about his family and his partner, and this is a few years old, and mm. he did break up with his partner a couple of years ago, and now he's with one of Miss B's friends. Oh. <laughs> so maybe you can get him back in here. My ears perked up. I thought he's single. <laughs> <laughs> well... Well, that's scary. Well, after the break, it's back to the vault for a chat with the hot gay crypt keeper of Hollywood, Mr. Tyler Cassidy. And we're going to have a cavalcade of deliciousness, Mr. Barrett Craig, whose charms will be thoroughly wasted on radio because you can't see him. But we he's can. in the lobby. I'm not even sure why I'm in this room if he's out there. Good point. Look through the window and you see all. The time is now 7.28. Don't go away. We'll be right back. James Whale and his pictures coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. British-born theater and film director James Whale expressed an early interest in art. He learned to stage plays while a prisoner in World War I. 
1930, after having moved to the States, he met handsome assistant story editor David Lewis in Hollywood. They openly shared a home in Pacific Palisades for 20 years. Whale is known for directing horror films such as Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and The Invisible Man, which were all blockbuster hits for Universal Pictures. Whale retired in comfort and pursued his first love, painting. A stroke left him depleted, and he committed suicide in 1957. The 1998 film Gods and Monsters depicted a fictional account of Whale's final days. The role of James Whale was played by out actor Ian McKellen. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, John Porter. Hi, this is Mark Patton, star of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out loud and out proud since 1974 on KPFK-FM 90.7 Los Angeles. 99.5 Ridgecrest China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, and streaming online at kpfk.org. You're listening to KPFK, powered by the people at 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, and at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU. I'm Steve Price. I'm Chrisanne Eastwood. And I am Vensel Jones. <laughs> you know, I first met Tyler Cassidy about a dozen years ago when a documentary about him called The Young and the Dead was released. We've interviewed him a few times over the years, and I'd hoped to have him back tonight live in the studio. But unfortunately, Halloween is the busy season for a hot crypt keeper, actually for any crypt keeper, because this Hollywood Forever Cemetery is welcoming both the living and the dead. The dead and the undead. I see what you did there, Steve. Here's the interview that Vosh Bodhi and I did with him last Halloween. Hi, my name is Tyler Cassidy, and I am president of Hollywood Forever and Fernwood Cemeteries. So are you technically a crypt keeper? You know, I started calling myself a cemeterian, but I don't think that's a real word. So undertaker's good, cemetery owner, but then I also have a preschool just to round things out really? in Mill Valley. Well, what all do you do then? At each location here and in Mill Valley, we have cemeteries, funeral homes, crematories, although the location in Marin County, Fernwood, is actually a natural burial. It's adjacent to Golden Gate National Recreation Area, which is that gigantic reserve. And there we bury people naturally, uh, sometimes in shrouds, no metal, no embalming, and they're buried in a natural setting. And then we use a restoration ecology to restore the grounds as part of the burial. So basically you just drive down the freeway and throw them out. No, <laughs> that's, that's actually one of the dominant trends in California that we're trying to fight against. <laughs> so you want to stop shopping, really. Yes, yes. 
You're both sides. Both sides. So you Ambidextrous. see the, How does a nice boy from the Midwest end up owning a cemetery in Hollywood? Well, we had sold all of our family funeral homes, and I had an idea because when I had gone back after college for what was supposed to be a visit, I ended up making uh, video photo montages of uh, the deceased and showing those at their funerals. That's what I could relate to in terms of a funeral home because it seemed like that was a good way to remember someone. And more than an embalming art, it was actually a form of memorial where people, I saw them have the most catharsis and the most emotion. And then when the computer age came, I designed some software in New York where cemeteries and funeral homes could use our software to have archival systems at their cemeteries to pull up biographical information and photos. And so I was actually out here to present to the two biggest cemeteries, Forest Lawn right next door and Rose Hill. And they at the time were speaking of the dilapidated, derelict, and twice padlocked Hollywood Memorial Park. And I stopped there on my way to the airport, and it was El Nino, and the place was completely dilapidated and flooded and in great disrepair, but I found it just beautiful. It was romantic. It seemed to me the oldest place in this city that to me at the time seemed just all newness, and it was love at first sight. But still, back then, no one was dying to get in there. Nobody was dying to get in. In fact, you couldn't die to get in there unless you owned property before they lost their license. But talk about it today. Today, it is more than a cemetery. We are a very operational, functioning cemetery. We serve so many diverse aspects and so many diverse elements of our community, but in different ways. In a funeral and cemetery way, we serve uh, the Russian Jewish community of Hollywood. We serve a lot of our Latino population because that's our demographics in L.A. We serve a lot of the Armenian population of Glendale. And those are the people that still believe in burial. We also do a lot of cremation business because that's the Anglo trend in California. And then we have, I think, an exceptional program of being an intrinsic part of the cultural fabric of L.A., if I can say that. For instance, we just had our annual Dia de los Muertos. Over the course of a day, I'll say over 10,000 people came. That started as a Mexican tradition, but now I would say it's an Angelino tradition of art and remembrance and performance. And then we also have an ongoing cultural series of plays. Uh, we have our summer Chinespia series, which celebrates the great films, both modern and classic and black and white and even silent. And that's every Saturday throughout the summer. And then we open ourselves even to uh, a program that's called Comedy is Dead. We also have art exhibits. So as we experimented and opened ourselves, the city kind of saw what I, I saw when I first walked in. Once it was given um, a fresh look and a fresh name that it was culture, that there was something that was intrinsically cultural about this place. Who are some really famous people who are buried at the cemetery? Yeah, tell us where the bodies are buried. Well, it depends upon your generation, I guess. I mean, it begins with Rudolph Valentino, the great film star. And we still have his annual memorial, which this year I think 300 people turned out, which is pretty incredible. Jump forward, we've got uh, Johnny Ramone. And we have such varied characters as one of the Darrens from Bewitched. 
as well as his boss. We have Miss Estelle Getty, Mr. Blackwell from Mr. Blackwell's List. And then we have those who are famous among their family and friends. But so much of old Hollywood is there. Marion Davies, Jane Mansfield, Cenotaph is there. Uh, the great epic filmmaker Cecil B. DeMille, both Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Sr. are there in the great Fairbanks Memorial. And it's amazing how many people who were part of the business, either doing scores or behind the camera or doing costumes like Adrian. So many people are there, and yet some of your audience probably wouldn't know them as the generations pass. And you mentioned that you've become a pillar to the community. And I think it's really true. I think you're actually underselling the importance of you know, Hollywood Forever in the community. Do all the activities that you do interfere with that steady stream of death? It's the um, amazing thing because, you know, traditionally a, a cemetery is supposed to serve the people in a five or ten mile radius. The interesting thing is we're serving the living, unlike any other cemetery, by bringing younger people in as well as older people in who aren't there to die or to mourn, and yet they're there to have cultural experiences with the dead surrounding them. And I think that does change their behavior, and I think it does change their experience. When people come to see, like, um, Sunset Boulevard, and hear Norma say, I'm ready for my close-up, Cecil B. DeMille, and you know that he's just 100 yards away, I think there's a special feeling there. And I think just that we've been so willing, because of desperation, because we, as you said, people were not dying to get in when I got there. Because of desperation, we had to think outside of. I can't say that we had to. Think, <laughs> <laughs> we had to. We had to think outside of the cemetery industry to make this cemetery thrive. That I think the rest of the industry has permission to experiment with new things. But people are always following the gaze anyway. It's so true. I mean, how is going to be? How has that impact? I mean, there aren't a lot of gay. Cemeterians out there? Or maybe there, there are, are more are more than you would think. Especially maybe. now after you. Yeah. <laughs> there's uh there's someone in Orange County who actually had a calendar of shirtless funeral directors and sold that for some benefit. So there's, you know, when I was making the funeral convention circuit back in the early part of my career, there were a number of gays and they appreciated me being open. Hollywood forever. Forever seems like an awfully long time. Yes, it is. Yes. One last serious sure. question. Yep. What sort of preparations are you making for the coming zombie apocalypse? Well, a lot of meditation and yoga. And that's just to keep me calm. And I felt like Day of the Dead was good. I went up in the middle and I just had to meditate for 15 minutes because there were so many people there. But uh, we have started to build vertically. And so we just built a 5,000-crypt mausoleum, and then we have plans for another 9,000-crypt mausoleum. So the zombie complex, it's going to be very busy. I mean, we're going to have to bring in a lot of part-time help. It'll be like wristbands. Yeah, wristbands for in and out. And we did show um, Dawn of the Dead uh, two weekends ago, just kind of as a, of a primer, you know, how to deal with a zombie. That's where they're all living in the mall with the zombies. So I think we're pretty ready. Yeah. Are you ever creeped out roaming around your cemetery at night? I um, <laughs> I've, I've never really gotten the creeps, and I, I maybe I'm just not sensitive, or I'd like to think that 
that if there's anyone there who's working for the dead people, it's me. You know, there's people who are definitely there for the living people and the grieving people. There's specific people now for the people that are there for entertainment, for cultural affairs. But I feel like it's always going to be my job as head caretaker to speak up for the dead people and think of, well, we're not going to do that because they don't like that. Well, how do you know they don't like that? Well, I feel like they don't like that. And I like to think that they're pleased with my job so far. So maybe they're not creeping me. The 15th annual Dia de los Muertos will be held at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery this coming Saturday, Saturday. November 1st, the day after Halloween. You can get a lot of information at HollywoodForever.com. And I had a friend just ask me if I wanted to go to Dia de los Muertos, and I said, yes, I would love to. I can't believe I've never been in all now, these do years. Now, you, do you go to cemeteries? Because I kind of I kind of dig them. As a, you know, I was a... I was a you, you dig know, in a, cemeteries? But I'm bummed. Thank <laughs> yeah, you very much. Thank you. But, you know, like, you know, I've seen, like, you know, where, where Shakespeare's buried, right. where Emily Dickens... I've done a lot of those old-timey yeah. kind of ones, but, I mean... You know, I've been to this one. You know who's there? else is there? But it, but it, but it, Mel Blanc, Bella, Who, Bella oh Lugosi God. is there. Who isn't there? I mean, well, have you ever been to the Westwood? Um, oh, the great one, one with Marilyn Monroe with Marilyn and Natalie Monroe. Wood. Yes, yes. that I one mean, is delightful. I mean, there's a lot of great. I mean, cemeteries are fun, and for some people, they actually, I don't know, my partner for one, mm. kind of feels a presence. And, well, my plan is when I die, my my power of attorney, my friend, is going to have me cremated and scatter my ashes here in the studio because they never clean here. No, they never do. Oh, my gosh. I'll I'm going to be here forever. forever. So I'll leave with Steve on my shoe? Yeah, yes, you will. Oh, my god. But goodness. enough talk of death and decay. We have something most delightful here, the most delectable Mr. Barrett Craig, who is currently starring in Eternity, the movie. So welcome, Barrett. Thank Yay. you. Now, Hi. I, this has nothing to do with the movie, but I have to ask how somebody from Texas emerged with such a marquee-ready name as Barrett Craig. You know, that's a family name, actually. My, a lot of my family is from England and from Canada, and so these names come from those families. They, use, they were used from ancestry. And there's so, my answer. And there it is. So you've been awfully busy, because it doesn't seem like that long ago when we had you in here to talk about Bruno and Erlene Go to Vegas, which right. you made with our very own Miss Barbecue. Mm-hmm. And now it's time for Eternity the Movie. Now... I would describe it, but I won't do a very good job. So why don't you tell me what you think that movie is? Well, Eternity the Movie is sort of a fun 80s throwback parody comedy musical extravaganza. Wait a minute. What the heck do you know about the 80s? You look like you're 12. (laughs) I had to do a lot of research. (laughs) I had to do the research. (laughs) I know. It just hurts me to say that the 80s are so long ago you had to research. But so we can all get an idea. Why don't we just play our clip from Eternity, the movie? Well, let's set this up real quick. This is the scene where BJ and Todd Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. meet the record producer for the first time. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. The record producer scene. Played by John Grise. Excellent. Boys, enter. Come. Sit. Just sit. Todd and BJ. I. Eternity. 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 I'm Barry Goldfield Jr. I love the denim. Are those Bugle Boy jeans you're wearing? Yeah. Yes, they are. Fabulous. I got your number from DJ High Pitch. I heard your song on a show and I thought, well, I've got to meet these guys. And then he told me your song's been getting a lot of calls. Congratulations. You know DJ High Pitch? We own the radio station. Well, that's convenient. It must really help your record sales. Oh, yeah. It's way better than payola. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yes, DJ. We go. Wait, wait, 
go way, way back. And I tell you, I knew him before he lost his testicles. <laughs> Sorry, it, it's funny because his voice is so low. Well, actually, no, it's not funny. It's sad and tragic. And there you have it. Now, one. Now, this was a great scene because it, it sort of underscored the aspect of your character. You're always playing him so stupid, which is hard to do, isn't it? You know, the way I the way I would say it, instead of saying Todd is stupid, I would like to say that he's just a little naive and likes to think that there's you know likes to think that there's good in everybody, and likes to think that everyone will only do what's the best, so and you, there's nothing else that's out there. So just to give us a quick plot, so you play Todd, and you you are two guys, you're singers? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and you're trying to be... To, Think hollow notes. You're, so, you're, so you're trying to be... It's kind of a hollow notesy. You guys are trying to be big stars. Mm-hmm. And so this scene is with you and your partner and this guy who runs the station and mm-hmm. so forth. So. It was our very first meeting with our first record executive, and he signs us, and we make music, and... It, Got you, rocket. Okay. Rocket. So now I'm now I'm sensing. Okay, it. Mm-hmm. So, and it's a bit of hollow notes, and, and it's kind of whammy too. A Very bit of much wham going yep, on. Yep. And that and that's an aspect of the show is that the two it almost plays as a romance, but neither of them is aware mm-hmm. that they're having a romance. Mm-hmm. Now, how tricky is that? You know, where, where do you draw the line? Because you had so many scenes together. Well, it's so funny. That sort of has been a great reaction to uh, that the audiences have shared with us that they see it as a romance. You know, of course, when we were making it, we knew that, you know, obviously that Todd and BJ have um, a relationship, but it was never really, the gay thing never really came up. It was just, this is how these two guys survive in their lives is by being together and making music together. And then it, and then part of the comedy comes from it being that they get very close to each other and, you know, you might think that they're going to kiss and you just... It it was just, that was never really a thought. And by close, we mean there's a bathtub scene. Mm -hmm. But totally innocent. Uh It's quite an amazing thing to witness. (laughs) Now, you're also a producer on this movie, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what is that like to produce and star in a film? I mean, how much input do you have? Well, to to be fair, I didn't get get involved as a producer until post, till, you know, when the movie was almost complete. Mm -hmm. So, um... You know, I I started getting involved afterwards when the movie was going to be coming out to theaters and when we were doing the music video and just just generally helping getting uh, pieces together for what's going on now. And speaking of the music video, we cannot not mention the music. Did you have any input on the music at all as they were writing it for it, or was it just handed to you? Because it's so deliciously awful. <laughs> I I love it. I love the music, but I agree, I know what you mean. The lyrics can be a little silly. It um, is what it is. I, you know, most of the music was handed to me, but there were times when we were recording and I'd have a riff here and there and all of a sudden something would come out and they would be like, that's staying. Like there's a, there's a, a key moment in one of the songs mm. that I don't want to give away. Okay. I don't want people to see. Okay. Has this cool. always been an ambition, though, to be a singer? It has been, yeah. Something about music has always, you know, it's always been, it always spoke to me. And I want to, you know, express through music. And so that's why this was sort of a dream role, because I'm playing a goofy, fun, you know, 80s pop star. It was, uh, you know, I, fit in, I feel like I fit into it like a glove. I do want to mention, though, that Eric Roberts is in this film because his mother-in-law, Lila Garrett, has a very popular show here at this station. 
Monday really? morning. So there's another connection to Barrett Crack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know. This is your second home, practically. Hey. Well, now, this this originally premiered in San Jose last March, right? But you're sort of in this rush now of, of big openings because you just got right. in from Toronto, I believe. Right, right, yeah. Um, we opened in New York the week before. Hmm. And then I went to Toronto, and I spent the week there doing press and press and press. And then uh, opened the movie over this past weekend. And it was great. Well, and one of the great things about social media is reading your Twitter feed counts as research. (laughs) And you're so excited about this. I mean, you're so excited (laughs) about opening the Beverly Hills Mm -hmm. movie theater in Toronto. It's just like, it's kind of, I mean, do you think you're ever going to not be that excited kid when these things happen? I don't know. I think it's just part of my personality. I don't know. If I didn't get excited about things, I feel like I might be dead. Good point. And very Halloween appropriate. (laughs) Um, now, what was it about this that attracted you initially? Because on paper, this is such a visual movie. I, I just wonder on paper, what was the appeal? Well, when I first got the audition, um, <laughs> I remember reading the script and I thought, God, this is so dramatic. And I just I thought it was awful. And I remember reading, um, you know, I actually did some research and I went to their website and I listened. They had a demo of one of the songs that make love, not just sex. Mm-hmm. And I remember listening to it and being like, I don't even want to bother. But then... The more I read about it, and the more I sunk my teeth into it, because I'm not a, I don't, I don't give up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this, and then it clicked for me, and I was like, oh my god, this is amazing, this is hilarious, this is a comedy, this is like Napoleon Dynamite. I get it now, and then I, I put myself on tape singing that song, because I wasn't really satisfied with the way they had it going, so I did it my own way, and they tell me that that's one of the things that really stood out, because I was the only one that did that. Now, the movie's got such a distinct 80s look, and I just wondered, there were some scenes where, where I, was, I was thinking, did they put you in the makeup chair with a photo of Olivia Newton-John in her getting physical days? Because you look just like her in some of those scenes. Was that a conscious effort? Yes. Yes, I would say so. I, you know, the, the costume designer and the makeup artist, everyone was all collaborative, and the, you know, um, and the, you know everyone, that, everyone that was working on it definitely was in on this whole thing together. Everyone was wanting to make it goofy and fun and make it feel not even like a parody, but also like an, a movie, a parody of an 80s movie, too. So you get a little bit of, it, of all of it. Now, what are the cool thing, you know, since you were too young to be there, what are some cool stuff you learned about 80s culture that you say, you know, it's time to bring that back? Uh, the music, to be honest, I really love the music and the music videos. I... It was fairly fun. You really saw some stuff you'd never... You saw... I mean, the thing about the 80s music videos, you got to see performers all the time without having to pay for a concert ticket. We really couldn't see them. Mm-hmm. So that really made performers accessible. Well, MTV just sort of appeared out of nowhere. Right. So you're saying that's when it sort of started? That's right, when it started 81. to blossom? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really not the 80s in a film until you see the solo flux in the corner with clothes hung in it. Well, yes. There's that, too. But no, when He's you say... blank. I, I, <laughs> that didn't... That, I know. It's an 80s reference. We'll explain to you later. I didn't do enough research, apparently. But yeah, when you say you do research, how does one research the 80s? Because I've got filing from the 80s that I still haven't done. (laughs) They gave me a CD of Hall & Oates, very best of Hall & Oates, Mm -hmm. because... Who I love, by the way. Do you? I did, too. They were in town this weekend. I know. know? They never call anymore. Mm. Daryl. How dare they? Daryl actually does like a home 
improvement show now on TV. No, what no what it is, it's a home show where he, he he has performers at his house and it's the best show ever. It's on like look on your direct TV. It's called Live from Daryl's House and he has singers and they hang out and they jam and it's awesome. He's also doing a remodeling show though on HG. Can we get back really? to can yes. we get back to Barrett? Oh okay. <laughs> we drifted. I know, I just wonder how you researched the eighties. I I really just watched a lot of music videos. I went that to look really up it? Well, I mean I and you know, yeah. Well, I mean, because it looks like the movie is paying homage to some sort of... I mean, I had seen a lot of the movies that we were sort of riffing on. Breakfast Club, yeah. Breakfast Club, 16 Candles. I'd seen a lot of these movies, so that wasn't um, as much of a thing. Mm. Uh, it was more the, the music that I had mm. sort of skipped over. So, you know, um, George Michael... Yeah, there's three. For me, the '80s is three words: Madonna, Michael Jackson, and George Michael. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, that is '80s mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. What do you want the audience to take away from the film? Well, I think I think one of the cool things that the movie does bring up is this this homoerotic thing. Um, I'm feeling that right now as I look at you. Oh, hey I now. think we all. <laughs> hey now, hey now. I think what's you know what's interesting because I've talked to the writer Joey about this. Is that you know he's a, Joey's a straight guy, mm. and he wrote this about it's sort of an not an autobiography of his life, but it's based on relationships in his life, mm. and it's I think it's fascinating that we can take this and think that these were two straight men that just happened to have a love for each other. I don't think that that can be a horrible. I don't think that should be a weird thing at all. Mm-mm. But of course, it is. It is funny at the same time, like a new wave Butch and, and Sundance. And, it's the birthday and of it's romance. Just fun. I know. And now, because it is Halloween, I I'm compelled to ask: Did you have any scary moments on the set? Any scary moments? Not like Halloween scary, just because something's always going to go wrong, no matter what you do creatively. You know. Oh gosh, I'm on the spot with that. Let's see. Let me think. Um, you can say no. That's okay. No, I don't think I have one okay. right now. But you know, if I think of one in a second, you okay. have a Halloween costume for Friday. I do. And what is it? <laughs> Uh-oh. 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 I actually don't know. I'm going to be – I actually don't have a name for it yet. It's, it's uh, I'm going to be like a – I ordered this pink wolf outfit. Okay. And my boyfriend's going as the animal trainer. Delightful. So yeah. you're being your mother. <laughs> so to find out more, you can go to eternitythewebsite.com. If you want to follow Barrett on Twitter, it's at Barrett Crake. And Barrett's got a brand new website of which he is justifiably proud, BarrettCraig.com. And that's B-A-R-R-E-T-T-C-R-A-K-E. Anything else you'd like to add to that, sir? That's amazing. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing yourself with us. It's been delightful, and happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you. As the pink Mm. wolf. (laughs) Well, that's the end of our ride. Gather your personal courage, take Tim Politico's by the hand, and exit to the far, far left of the tram's Forward motion. Our thanks to tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, assistant director and social media maven, Miss Barbecue, coordinating producer, Steve Pride, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. And our board up, Jose Benvenides. If you have comments or story suggestions, follow us on Twitter or Facebook at IMRU Radio. Contact us directly. Email IMRU Radio at IMRU Radio.org. We are simulcast and available on demand at KPFK.org. 
also is posted to the IMRU Facebook page by noon every Tuesday. We want to thank everyone who helped make our recent fund drive a roaring success. Tune in next week for IMRU's annual live election special with Frontiers Magazine's news editor Karen Oakham and a few special political guests. Puck coming up next, Flip the Script with Riku Matsuda. And we close with the deathless ballad, Don't Let Go, I'm Begging You Please, from Eternity, the movie. Good night. Good night. Good night. <laughs> 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 oh, that's good. That was Ooh, good. that's scary. <laughs> Ooh, that's scary. Hey, hey, L.A., thanks for tuning in to KLAP, Southern California's first choice for everything R&B. I'm DJ High Pitch, and I'm going to keep it going with the hottest jam of the summer. Here's eternity with Don't Let Go, I'm Begging You Please. Say